Let's open up in prayer. God, as we again enter into your word, as we take this time to step into yeah, your spirit-inspired teachings um, and try to understand and grasp what your resurrection means for us, how it changes us, how it has saved us, what it calls us to, as we seek to keep our eyes focused on you and you alone, as we seek to put aside the other things that distract us, the other things that compete for our allegiances and our time and our attention, help us to center on you, Jesus. Help us to allow you to be the anchor that you have said you are for us. And as we recognize what you did for us today on Easter Sunday, help that truth to be loud and clear in our hearts and help it to bleed out into the way that we live. In your name, amen. For the last uh, two weeks leading up to today, and for at least one more week after this, we have been working through this series on resurrection hope, on the hope that we have in Jesus through his death and resurrection, the way that it changes us, the way that it changes our circumstances, the way that it changes everything. Uh, Darren spoke on Friday about the hope of the cross being for more than even just you and me, but in fact for all of creation. Everything in existence has been shaped and changed by this event. On Good Friday, we sat with the tension and, and, and the pain and the uncertainty and the brokenness of Friday. But today, that tension is released. The victory is here. It has already been... Uh, an amazing morning of celebration, I think, in the music that we've done, in the children's story, in the sharing that we had, in all of these things, we have already been declaring this truth that our lives and our existences have been changed by what happened on this morning 2,000 years ago. And over this series, we've been exploring this idea. We've been looking at this hope and, and what it means for us. We talked about the fact that this hope changes you and me, not just in the future, not just for some future time, but also right now, in some way, in this moment, we are already seated in the heavenly realms. We have already been brought up with Christ. We are already experiencing our salvation. That occurs in this moment. We get the first fruits of that here in God's active kingdom here and now. And last week, we talked about how God's death and resurrection has changed our understanding of justice that Jesus accomplished ultimate justice on the cross and that the heart cry that is within all of us for justice is answered best and most perfectly in Jesus and who he is. That justice flows from him. That he began a new creation on the day that he rose from the dead and that we as the church, as his body, as heirs and co-heirs with Christ are called and invited into that work alongside him. And today we want to simply recognize that the hope that we have in Christ is a deep hope. And what I mean by that is this. There are many different ropes that tie us to the anchor of hope. There are many different ways in which we rest on the cornerstone of faith. But what I want to do today, even in our celebration, is to recognize the fact that Christian hope is unique because it is not simply a hope that tries to cover up pain 
that tries to push it aside or ignore it, but Christian hope, as the Easter weekend, as Good Friday through to Easter Sunday teaches us, Christian hope is a hope that engages with and grapples with and moves through pain and darkness in a meaningful way as the path toward true hope and victory. I want to explore with you this morning that on this Easter Sunday, we experience the realization of our depth of hope. And, and I want to start by taking a step back and reminding you of something that I think you all know, but it is important for you to be reminded and it is important for me to remind myself of this thing as well as we seek to understand Jesus' death and resurrection with fresh eyes. Darren spoke last week about the, the uh, ubiquitous nature of the cross, how the cross is everywhere all around it, we, as we see it uh, in tattoos and on chains and graveyards and earrings and hockey helmets and sneakers and sweatshirts and wristbands, and everywhere around us, the cross shows up, and it becomes easy then to forget about the scandal of the cross. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, that it's a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. And that word stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, a scandal. The cross has so often been sanitized for us. It's beautiful. We dress it up. We have it in stainless steel here on the back wall. And to be clear, I love this cross. I love that we have this here. But it makes it all the more important that we remind ourselves of the deep scandal of the cross, of the irony of finding our hope in this instrument of torture and death. Imagine for a moment walking into church with an electric chair mounted on the back wall. Or perhaps better, imagine walking in and every Sunday we walk onto a stage which is a hangman's gallows with nooses dangling from the ceiling and we climb up onto that stage underneath those ropes and we point up and we say, this is what we celebrate. This is where our hope comes from. We celebrate this instrument of death and of pain and of destruction. This has become a symbol of victory for us. We are picking up our nooses and we are following Christ. Yikes. It feels a little bit different, a little bit uncomfortable to think that way. That is the scandal of the Christian faith that we have chosen to align ourselves with this horrible, lowly, shameful ugly thing and proudly say, this is the road we follow. We will take that cross. We will walk that road too as a representation of our greatest victory. I want you to hold that image in your head for a little bit and step back into a piece of our world's definition or understanding of hope. Because worldly hope is often a mixture of two things. First, worldly hope relies on self-sufficiency. If I can just try hard enough, work hard enough, do hard enough, think enough, believe enough, focus on the American dream enough, pull hard enough on my own bootstraps, then brighter days are ahead. That's one element of typical worldly hope. The second is that of distraction or escapism. If we just pretend hard enough, if we turn the music up loud enough, if we eat enough or joke enough or blindly believe enough or distract ourselves enough, then life won't seem so bad. The world's hope is a, a Disneyland hope. Put bright colors on everything, dress everything up pretty in costumes, put on loud music, rich foods, gleaming lights, exciting rides, 
and you get so caught up in this for, for a little while, you actually forget that there's something wrong with the world. You forget and you, dr you, f you drown out those feelings that there are things that are wrong or broken for a little while. But Christian hope, is Christian hope, is deep and true hope precisely because it does not cover up or ignore pain. It doesn't run away from suffering. It walks right through the deepest valley. It acknowledges it. It speaks truth to it. And it continues to victory on the other side. We don't hide from pain. We put pain on center stage. We put it in a place where we, it's in view at all times during the service. We sing about it in songs. We reenact it and celebrate it through communion. Joseph Conrad, in his novel, The Heart of Darkness, wrestles with the idea of evil and fears that if we gaze too long into the abyss, if we engage too deeply with evil in the world, we may be swallowed up by it. Christian hope allows us to name evil, to look clearly at it, to name our pain, to name our despair, because we know that evil doesn't have the last word. I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want to do is set the stage with words from Romans 5 and then walk through three points with you on deep hope. This is how Paul speaks about hope in Romans 5, uh, verses 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're going to dig into this a bit more through the sermon. But here are the three points I want to make about resurrection hope. Resurrection hope gives us true, deep perspective. Resurrection hope gives us true, deep life. And resurrection hope gives us true and deep resolution. So first... Resurrection hope gives us perspective. What Paul captures in Romans 5 in these verses is that scandal of the Christian hope. We glory in our sufferings because sufferings drive us to persevere. And as we persevere, it builds in us the character of Christ. And as we walk with Christ, we also receive a hope that cannot be touched by evil or darkness or famine or sword. We receive a hope that will not be put to shame. Because God's love is in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We don't hope in spite of our sufferings. We don't hope in a way that is fragile, that can be rocked by the trials that come. Our hope is hope specifically because of the trials that we have, because of the sufferings that we experience, because we follow a God who has walked through, who has blazed a trail through those trials and sufferings and come out the other side fully victorious over death and sin. Psalm 126 says that those who sow with tears will reap songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And Christians understand this more deeply than the psalmist ever could. The model for us in Christ is that the deepest suffering, the death of the perfect seed, resulted in a harvest of unimaginable joy. The mustard seed growing into a tree that all the birds of the air can rest in. 
because we remember Jesus' tears and suffering for us, it changes the way we experience and understand our own grief. The Beatitudes also echo this truth. In Luke, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus is saying there are good things. There are riches. There is fulfillment. There is laughter. There is joy. But the path to those things isn't through avoiding suffering. Rather, the path is directly through the hard things in life, through poverty and hunger and tears and broken relationships. Jesus promises that walking through that together with Christ will bring us to greater riches than we could ever experience on earth. And we can believe him because he took that journey himself. Our deep hope in the resurrection gives us true perspective. It allows us to face and name pain head on. Point number two, resurrection hope gives true deep life. When we suffer and, and die and give of ourselves and let go of our need, for riches or fulfillment or laughter or esteem and instead allow ourselves to identify with and be filled with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. It changes us in unexpected ways. The world, shallow hope, calls us to find life by looking deep inside ourselves, by embracing our opinions and our characters and our feelings and our needs. Now, I have spoken recently from this pulpit about the importance of self-awareness and introspection. Don't hear me saying that we should not be looking inward. But so often, what we think is our identity, what we think is our opinion or our temperament or our need or our desire, is really just a cobbling together of the opinions around us, of the things that we read, of the things that we watch, of the things that we listen to, imitations of people that we admire, remnants of what we were taught by our parents and our teachers, things put on us by our environment or our upbringing, we stack all this stuff on and go, here, this is who I am. This is my personality. But the truth of it is, it is only through emptying ourselves, through getting rid of that baggage that we have picked up over the years and turning to Jesus, our creator, that we can actually become or understand our true selves, who we were truly created to be. C.S. Lewis speaks about this. He uses the example of salt for how Jesus changes us. Imagine giving salt to someone who had never tasted salt before. And you hand this to them and say, this is salt. And they taste it and, and their, their lips pucker. It's, it's a strong kind of almost sour taste. It's intense. And you tell them where we're from, people put salt in everything. People put salt in sweet dishes. People put salt in savory dishes. Everything that we eat has salt in it. And they would probably be shocked. Surely, everything you eat would be overpowered by this taste. Surely, everything that you eat will taste the same. It will taste like salt. 
But you and I know that isn't how salt works. What salt actually does is it makes everything taste more like its true self. A strawberry tastes more like a strawberry. Chocolate tastes more like chocolate. A tomato tastes more like a tomato. Steak tastes more like steak. When people form a community, when they let Jesus into their hearts, sometimes people believe that they will all end up looking the same, talking the same, thinking the same. And that's a mistake that the church has made throughout history. In order to be in our club, you need to dress like this. You need to think exactly like this. You need to have these preferences. You need to like this music. You need to fit this schedule. You need to attend these groups. You need to follow these rules. And we think that Christianity calls us to become more similar, to lose our identities in order to fit into a very specific mold. But the wonder, the wonderful mystery that C.S. Lewis explores and that Paul explores and that others have grappled with through time is that when we let go of who we think we are supposed to be, when we allow Christ to fill us through his Holy Spirit, what happens is that we don't become some clone of some other Christian. We don't become people who all look and drink and think and eat and act and sing all exactly alike. We become our truest, deepest selves. The diversity in us only becomes more apparent and more beautiful. And this is the catch of it, the gift of new life that we have, the gift of ourselves. It's been given to us, it's there, but it requires a letting go in order to pick up. It means that we step away from the Frankenstein monster of self that we create on our own and allow Jesus to make us into the new creations we were always meant to be. Two weeks ago, I spoke about our new lives in Christ and the call that we have to go through these miniature deaths in order to bring something new, to be willing to let go of or let things fall away in our lives, to make room for the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in us. The resurrection teaches us that we must die in order to live. In fact, C.S. Lewis also reminds us of this. He has a knack for saying things you already know, but just with the right phrasing so it catches you in a new way. And I love this quote from him. He says this, Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Listen to that again. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. It's a powerful reminder of the deep hope of a Christian life that walks through the cross greater resurrection. Our truest life is found in dying. That's why there's a cross behind me. That's what this symbolizes, a willingness to follow Jesus and die to ourselves and become a new creation that we might inherit eternal life. That is the hope of a weekend like this. That the path to true, to true life goes through dying to ourselves and our truest humanity, our truest selves come when we are filled with the Spirit of God. First, resurrection hope gives us a true, deep perspective. Second, it gives us a true, deep life. And third, it gives us true resolution, deep resolution to life's biggest questions. As we die to ourselves and rise again in Christ, as we look to this weekend for a roadmap to true joy and true filling and true riches and true hope, we begin to understand God's big picture plan when it comes to suffering and pain. As I said earlier in the message, we can finally truly wrestle with and grapple with the big, scary 
hard issues in our lives because we no longer need to fear death. We don't have to fear evil. And that's not to say we don't have to consider these things, that we don't have to be careful with these things, but we can look at sin and evil and hurt in our lives with clear eyes and see it for what it truly is. We can look into Joseph Conrad's heart of darkness without fear of being swallowed up because we know who holds the victory. We know that our hope will not be put to shame. We know that we have God through his Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's fascinating to me sometimes when the New Testament writers uh, choose to quote the Old Testament, what they choose. The writers of the New Testament often look to their scriptures, to the law and the prophets, in order to strengthen or enhance or give context or scriptural weight to the points that they are making. But often it feels a little bit like it's out of left field in terms of what they choose. And there's a surprising one, an example I'll give you, in Romans chapter 8. The end of the chapter goes like this. Who shall separate us from the love of, God, uh, love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul is quoting from the Psalms here, from Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is not a happy or a hopeful psalm. Psalm 44 is an angry psalm. It is wrestling with a God who seems far away. The psalmist writes, We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago, when your hand drove out nations and planted our ancestors. It was your right arm, it was your hand in the light of your face, for you loved them. God, you used to be active, says the psalmist, but not anymore. This is what the psalmist writes. Now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You make us retreat. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Paul quotes this psalm. Would have been deeply familiar to the listeners of the letter. And he goes, boy, remember those questions? Remember when this is how we felt? Remember the uncertainty? Remember the hardship and the persecution and the anxiety and the forsakenness that we once lived in? He quotes those verses, and then he walks forward in one of the most confident declarations of God's love for us, his care for us, his providence over us in all of Scripture. This is what Paul says. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has given them the answers to the question of where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it feels far away? Where is God when bad things happen? Paul says nothing can separate us from him. He's right there with us. Our resurrection hope is death-proof and life-proof and angel-proof and demon-proof and future-proof and power-proof and height and depth-proof and creation-proof. Nothing can move this anchor that keeps our souls. Here's one more example. This is what I want to close with. The darkest, most hopeless psalm 
most hopeless poem in all the Bible, has to be Psalm 88. Even the angriest and darkest and most depressed psalms always in the end come back to some kind of hope, to God's hope in our lives, to a God who must be moving behind the scenes, even if we can't feel it, even if we can't see it, he's there. But Psalm 88 doesn't do this. Biblical scholars actually make the case that Psalm 88 may be the oldest psalm in the book, the first written of all the psalms, written by an Israelite living in Egypt 1,500 years before Christ came. This is what the poet says. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends, and you have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? And most psalms turn towards hope, but this psalm is bitter, spiteful, angry to the end. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me, taken from me, my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my only companion. For 1,500 years, those questions echoed. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up to praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? 1,500 years later, on a Sunday morning, with an empty tomb, God gave his perfect and final answer to that question. Will the dead rise up to praise? Yes. Is your love declared in the grave? Yes and amen. With a beauty and a power and a completeness that the psalmist could never have imagined. This is a deep hope. Not a cheap hope based on ignoring the pain around us. Or a naive hope based on trying hard enough or being good enough. But a hope that is grounded in Jesus Christ who walked through death and emerged victorious. Christus Victor. That is the gift of Resurrection Sunday. All questions, all doubts, all fears answered. In this moment, he is risen, and we will rise. Amen?